Welcome to Sparks of History. We are very pleased to have with us today acclaimed writer, educator, and historian, Professor Richard Landis. Professor Landis has authored numerous works, including the more recent Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad. Professor Landis, thank you so much for being with us. We thank appreciate you. it very much. Just um, generally speaking, the premise of, of your book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? And what exactly is Hollywood? <laughs> okay, so um, hmm, let me start with Hollywood and then go to Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Hollywood uh, is something that I discovered while I was investigating the story of Muhammad Adura, this 12-year-old boy at Netzarim Junction, who the news reports had the Israelis targeting and shooting in his father's arms, and which I and others who have looked into its impact argue is the first serious uh, uh, worldwide, but the first successful blood libel in the West uh, to take since the Holocaust. Um, and unfortunately, the people amongst whom it took the most vigorously were people who called themselves liberals and progressives. Um, but I think at that point, uh, <laughs> it, the labels no longer applied to these people, but they were claiming those labels. And um, and so I was looking into it, and I studied with a man named Nachum Shachaf, who had gotten two hours of Reuters footage, and I looked at that Reuters footage from that day at Netzarim Junction where the incident happened. And it, it was clear to me that it, it, there was a huge amount of staging going on. And then I had the chance to see the original rushes from Talal Abu Rahman, the cameraman who actually filmed the alleged uh, killing of uh, Mohammed Adoula with Charles Andelin, who was the French-Israeli journalist who uh, edited and published the footage according to the narrative of his cameraman. And I'm looking at this stuff, and once again, I'm seeing all these fakes. And at one point, there's a particularly ridiculous one where a big fat guy pretends he's been hit in the leg, and then when he realizes nobody's taking him to the ambulance, he walks away without limping. And... <laughs> And uh, I laughed and said, uh, geez, these all these seem staged. And Andelin replied, yeah, they do that all the time. It's a cultural thing. And and that's when the other shoe dropped. I mean, I knew the Palestinians fake stuff. I didn't realize that the media knew they fake stuff and had no problem using their stuff because Talal Abu Rahman had been working with Charles Andelin for 12 years at this point. So he had no problem. And that's when I invented the term Pollywood. And I realized that, you know, it's so unthinkable or was uh, since the 21st century, uh, much less. But it, it was so unthinkable for people in the what I call the aughts, the first decade of the 21st century, to conceive that the Palestinians would have staged that scene that, you know, I'd say, okay, there are five possibilities. Israelis on purpose, Israelis by accident, Palestinians by accident, Palestinians on purpose, and and literally, you know, one in a hundred people would come up with the possibility that it was staged. It was just unthinkable. So I made the movie Pollywood, and I documented it, and so on. Um, now, what happened as a result of that was 
um, that I began to realize that there was a public secret, that that this is stuff, you know, when Charles Landela said to me, oh, yeah, they do it all the time, he'd never say that in public. In public, uh, his cameraman is... Uh, totally professional and completely uh, trustworthy and so on. That's that's what he says in his book, and that's what he says when he's interviewed. Off the cuff, there it's the opposite. And the same thing happened in Paris. There were three French journalists who viewed the rushes with the higher-ups in France, too. And when they said, but w- what's going on here? There are all these fakes. The response was the same, which was, oh, monsieur, vous savez, c'est toujours comme ça. It's always like that. Um, so that's what, in a sense, opened me up to realize that it was possible for, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, I'd call it a sort of consensus amongst journalists to tell a narrative uh, and it's really a form of pack journalism to tell a narrative uh, that pleases them, that for some reason there are a number of motivations for doing this, but that, that that pleases them regardless of whether it's accurate or not. And we saw that in really awful um, detail uh, on October 17th of last year, 2023, when you know the uh, a shortfall rocket hit a parking lot uh, near a hospital, um, possibly killing twenty people, and Hamas ten days after they had carried out their massacre, um, said an Israeli strike hit a hospital and killed hundreds, five hundred, four seventy one, just to be accurate, and so on, and. And the press just jumped all over it. It, it, was, it was staggering how unprofessionally they behaved. And so I began to realize that, you know, it's possible for the whole world in this modern age of communication to be misinformed, um, especially, and one of the things I've learned about fake news is that the only fake news that works is the news that people want to hear. You can put out fake news that nobody wants to hear and nobody's going to listen to it. So the fact that this kind of fake news is so successful is disturbing. And basically my argument in the book is that since 2000, starting with what I call the Oslo Jihad, which was what happened in late September with this image being a major spark in the war against Israel, the suicide terror war against Israel, um, what you had was the first attack of global jihad, which had been already set in motion back in 1979 with Khomeini and with uh, this guy in Saudi Arabia and so on, um, but had mostly in that, those 20 years taken place within um, uh, it, it, the borders or the bloody borders of Islam, but not against democracies in the West. And it, this was the first time. And the reaction driven by the media and driven by this image of Muhammad Abdullah, uh, and later by the claim of massacre of uh, 500 people at Jenin uh, in 2002, had essentially convinced the thought leaders of the West, the liberals and conservatives, um, to blame Israel for the outbreak of the violence. And that then became a pattern of thinking which applied also when they attacked the United States. 
And although there were plenty of Americans who were outraged and, and who are outraged to discover that the British uh, Reuters and the British BBC would not use the word terrorism to describe what happened on 9-11, um, there were plenty of people at the time who were outraged, but over time, what came to dominate the public discourse uh, right now, frighteningly, with these uh, teeny boppers on TikTok uh, mesmerized by uh, bin Laden's letter, um, was when jihadis attack a democracy, blame the democracy. And that is so powerful a discourse that, in fact, the whole world can be wrong. And, you know, the, I took the title from two things. One was, um, what's his name? Echad uh, Am uh, was talking about um, how, you know, in Ukraine in the 1890s, when you said, no, Jews don't use uh, Gentile blood to bake into their matzahs, the response was, can the whole world be wrong and the Jews be right? And then after Janine, um, when the Israelis were saying, no, we have to do this, they, uh, um, the uh, uh, Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, said, I don't think that the whole world can be wrong and, the, and Israel be right. And so what you've got is what I would call a, an emperor's new clothes scenario. Um, and one of the things I'm playing with right now is the idea that if the emperor had had a Jew in his court, he wouldn't have gone out naked. Um, but he didn't. And it's possible for everybody to get it wrong because, well, in the story, it's because they don't want to look stupid. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. Um, the original title of the book was They're So Smart Because We're So Stupid. And the the epigram is, in fact, if I were a Muslim, I would take the stupidity of Westerners as a sign from Allah that I should join jihad. Um, so that's basically the book is you've gotten this exactly wrong. And it's not only that you've gotten it exactly wrong, but it's actually destroying your societies as well as damaging, desperately damaging Israeli society. When when we talk about a global jihad, is it is it fair to say that today's Arab countries are more interested, at least the leaders are more interested in just preserving their power and their positions than advocating this pan-Islamic, pan-Arabism caliphate uh, yes. idea? Right, right. Yes and no. In other words, yes, they don't want... Uh, and there are plenty of uh, leaders in the Arab world who are rooting for Israel to take out Hamas. Not that they're going to do anything to actually help, but uh, they're happy that Israel is doing it. Uh, on the other hand, they're all under heavy pressure. I mean, Mohammed, uh, yeah, Mohammed, uh, um, Osama bin Laden used the image of Mohammed Adua in his um, effort to recruit for global jihad literally months after the incident occurred. Uh, and before 9-11, and um, in it, he denounced all the Arab leaders as a bunch of cowards who weren't capable of taking vengeance for this terrible deed. Uh, and so it, the leaders are clear that uh, the jihadis are their enemies, and in fact, they expelled most of the really dangerous ones, and the West took them in, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, well, we, I, I mean, yeah. 
Um, and so they're they're unhappy with uh, the spread of jihad. On the other hand, they have to um, accede to some of the outrage. So, for instance, uh, in one of the chapters in the book is about the Danish cartoon scandal. And there you had every Arab leader, you know, screaming how disgusting and racist and blasphemous these cartoons were. Um and siding with people like, uh, uh, what's his name, um, Karadawi, uh, who's a Muslim Brotherhood firebrand and who approved fully of uh, suicide terror against Israelis. And although he didn't approve of it against the West, um, you know, he was part of this effort to establish a global caliphate. And already in 1994, he was saying in America, that it, America and Europe will be conquered, not by jihad, but by dawah, which is the sort of summons to convert to Islam. But nonetheless, he's looking like the jihadis for world conquest. Um, and, and the West was just unbelievably foolish in its, added, in its reaction to this assault, so that the worst, the three worst cartoons, Muhammad is a pig, Muhammad being buggered by a dog while he's praying, and Muhammad as the devil incarnate, were actually composed by the imams who wanted to arouse the anger of the Muslim world against the infidel blasphemers. They were the blasphemers. And most people don't even know that that was the case. I mean, I have people reading my book and saying, I didn't know that. I didn't know those three were done by the Muslims. And and the fact is, every time that these countries came and said, you know, we're outraged and we want an apology, we should have had those three cartoons open and say, I think you have to take care of the blasphemers in your midst before you come and tell us what we can say and what we can't say. But we didn't. We, we folded entirely. Um, and so, in general, the attitude has been always to back down when jihadis, or I call them caliphators, because they're also the Dawah caliphators. They're not blowing people up, but they take advantage of when people are blown up to tell the Westerners how they need to behave in order to avoid further blow-ups. Um, so it's like every time there is a problem, we back down. And we can't afford to keep packing down. It's, you know, when I first discovered cognitive war and invasive cognitive war, which is you want to invade another culture and what you need them to do is stand down while you invade, I would describe it to people and I'd say, well, who'd be stupid enough to stand down on an invasion? And I'd say the West against the jihad and they go, oh. So what's what's the source of that? What's behind it? Is it is it beyond stupidity? Is it fear? Is it is it a value system, a lack of a value system? Uh, is it just simple lack of foresight of consequences? What, what's, what's rooted in this? Well, in a sense, it's everything that you said plus one. Um, it, it, the way I put it is there are three major contributors to what I call lethal journalism, which is this journalism that passes on Palestinian war propaganda as news uh, by our journalists, the BBC, the CNN, Le Monde, New York Times, you name it. Um, and 
so the three are, first of all, I think there's no question there's intimidation. They are afraid. I have an interview up at my Vimeo site with an Italian uh, reporter who sat down with me for an hour and described the kind of intimidation of journalists that went on at the time of the first Antifada, the second Antifada, the Oslo Jihad. So there's no question there's intimidation and that, you know, you can be retaliated against. Um, I think there's also, I think what journalists do is they, the fig leaf for being intimidated and not being willing to to admit it, which is what they should do. They should say, you know, we're reporting from a place where uh, a totalitarian movement controls all uh, information. There's no free press. Um, and we're going to tell you as much as we can. Fill in the blanks. But instead, they report it as if it's true and as if it's reliable. Palestinians say is not a dead giveaway for Hamas propaganda. It's a valid source. Okay, so on the one hand, you have the the so the fig leaf for that intimidation uh, that leads them to comply with the Palestinian demands on how they cover things uh, is the post-colonial paradigm, which is Israel is a, a colonial imperial power. It's a Western invader. The indigenous population were dispossessed, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm on the side of the little guy. Um, it's a complete misreading of what's going on. In fact, the Israelis are the indigenes. The, the Arab Muslims are actually the inheritors of an imperial colonial movement in the 8th century, 7th and 8th centuries, that has very few parallels in the history of mankind. And their attitude towards Israel is very much an imperial colonial. We will not allow another people to have independence in what we consider our empire. So um, so they adopt this as their fig leaf. But I think the third, and in some senses, obviously for Jews, the most disturbing is there seems to be an almost, how can I put this, um, insatiable appetite for stories about Jews behaving badly. So, you know, when the Al-Akhli hospital hit, they, you know, not all of them. Some of them were almost automatons like uh, Jake Tapper and stuff. But some of the journalists, and I'll, you know, skip on their names, um, were clearly, you know, they were quietly satisfied to be able to report this. I mean, there's no explanation for why 10 days after the Hamas had shown itself to be so ruthless, they would take what Hamas had to say as a valid claim before even checking it out, either independently by getting a picture of the hospital destroyed or actually let's get a picture of the crater in the parking lot. Um, but no, uh, you know, it was uh, Jeremy Bowens talking about how the hospital was flattened. And afterwards he said, well, I looked at a picture and I saw this empty part. So I figured the hospital must have been flattened. And when asked if he thought that that was not a good way to do journalism, he says, I have no regrets. And then he gets promoted by the BBC. So, you know, we're dealing with a situation in which the media literally, I think, has been hijacked by people who are shall we say, narrative 
journalists and the narrative that they've picked on is a radically inadequate uh, paradigm, post-colonial paradigm. It's radically inadequate for understanding what's going on here, and it systematically misinforms the West. And, and it's, so is this, uh, you seem to be alluding, is this just simply part of it is blatant anti-Semitism? So, uh, you know, I like to save anti-Semitism. I'm a medievalist, and we have all sorts of forms of Jew hatred. So we, I like to save anti-Semitism for the exterminatory kind, what the Nazis had and what the global jihadis have. Whereas what I see going on in the West is a interesting form of secular supersessionism. Supersessionism is the doctrine that was first developed by the Christians and later adopted, not formally, but in practice by the Muslims, which is basically, we are the chosen people. And in order for us to be chosen, you Jews have to be unchosen. And therefore, and this is a terribly zero-sum notion of what... uh, uh, chosenness is, you know, they could say we'd like to be chosen too, but it said we uh, Jews have to be. We'll, we'll share the chosen pie. Right, right, right. You know, and it, like last week's Parsha, you know, the God says Israel is my first, my firstborn. That doesn't mean there can't be other borns, but yeah, okay. So, um, so here, what I think you have with this supersessionism is people who want to claim to be the global leader in moral behavior have a particular problem with the Jews. They're the earliest group to claim that, and they're the most long-lasting group to claim a kind of moral leadership in the global community. And so any news that brings Israel down makes them feel better. And so, you know, my father used to say, um, I don't know how many times he said this to me because obviously I had a problem with it. You don't make yourself look bigger by making other people look smaller. And yet that's exactly what supersessionism is about. It's making Christians or Muslims or progressive, global progressives like Judith Butler feel that they are superior by being able to look down on, um, on Jews. And, you know, it, In 2002, at the same time that uh, uh, Kofi Annan was saying, uh, I don't think the whole world can be wrong and Israel be right, um, right around that time, you had people literally saying that, you know, Israel has lost the moral high ground. And I kept thinking, you know, we're fighting people who literally attack civilians, teach their children to hate so badly that they blow themselves up attacking children on the other side, and we've lost the moral high ground. And then I realized it wasn't that we lost the moral high ground to the Palestinians. We lost the moral high ground to the progressive left. And they now had, you know, reshut. They had permission. They had the authorization to dump on Israel. And I think that explains, you know, I mean, as I said, there are three factors this one is the most troubling because it's really well. No, they're all troubling. The 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 silliness of the postcolonial paradigm applied here, and the 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 cowardly um, 
acquiescence to Palestinian intimidation. It's a, it's a very ugly picture. You, you had mentioned before um, social media, TikTok, and the, the new generation. There's certainly a um, a social media war, like yep. a better word, going on between the different sides. And, and uh, how do you win? How do you even begin to win a war like that when these ideas and concepts are so entrenched right. among what you what you said before, thought leaders? And now the young generation, I, I think the statistics show that for all the great um, propaganda, all the great, propaganda is the wrong word, all the great uh, social media pro-Israel and pro the situation that's happening here, it's right. dwarfed in terms of numbers by yeah. the other side. How, yeah. how, do you, how do you fight this war at all? So first of all, I do think you have to fight it on the ground. I mean, you know, I spend a certain amount of time on Twitter every day going after people like Mehdi Hassan and uh, AOC and so on. Um, but I do think uh, this is not going to sound particularly doable right away. But, you know, in a sense, the 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 sort of the challenge of Western success in the mass production of items that were normally restricted to the aristocracy, and this includes means of communication, um, has created a kind of addictive personality. It's very hard. People are addicted to Facebook. They're addicted to various kinds. It's just drugs, obviously, and so on. So, so, Addiction is a terrible problem, and it has to be faced. We have to, as a culture, understand that if we can't be disciplined about the information that circulates, if we can't be disciplined about how we think about the kinds of things that are coming to us and how we respond to people. I mean, you know, think of these, these, these loopy kids who were in college who have been taught that the Palestinian BDS is a civil society movement fighting for freedom and dignity, right? And, and they get really clear evidence that that's not the case. And they get really clear evidence that the Palestinians who have been claiming the civil society status uh, approve of this, and yet they march with them. And, you know, one study showed that 48% thought that uh, Hamas was justified and 44% thought that you could live an openly gay life in Gaza. So, you know, we're talking about people who really don't engage with reality. I, I think that's, you know, one of the fights that's going on at Harvard over uh, Claudine Gay is that she represents exactly the kind of DEI ideological narrative that undermines repeatedly the the basic um, principles of uh, the university, academia, seeking the truth, uh, even if you can't, you know, nail it down, at least get close to it. Um and as a result, we have a generation of kids who really 
almost need deprogramming. So, so it, it seems that you know there's a lot of blame, rightfully so, um, towards the university, the leadership, the entrenched uh, DEI bureaucracy. But obviously, it doesn't start at the university level. These these kids are coming into university and 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 are a part of this. So they're they're getting whatever they're getting value systems, concepts, ideas much before the university right. college level. So how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I mean, in some senses, what this generation, the younger generation, has to realize is that they're in a civilizational war that this is really a clash of civilizations like uh, um, Sam Huntington pointed out in the mid 90s uh, and he was he was literally banned from progressive circles he was a warmonger he was creating the friction that he was predicting or describing you know and and I remember once I, I had a seminar we were reading him and we were reading Fukuyama and I forgot to bring my book in. And I turned to a colleague. I said, do you have a copy of Huntington? And she said, I wouldn't have that book on my bookshelves. You know, okay. Um, so, so yeah. So academia and the the feed into it, the, the schools have been invaded by this anti-racism, anti, or I don't know if it's anti-gender, pro-gender, or anti sexual dichotomy or whatever, um, all, all of these ideologies are, in a sense, making it impossible for people to think clearly. Um, you know, the, the moral panics that we run into constantly, you know, uh, um, Omer Bartov in responding to some of the unpleasant things that Israelis said about Hamas after 9-11, uh, which, you know, how could you compare them to animals? I actually think it's an insult to animals to compare Hamas to animals. But, you know, there was this sort of moral panic. Oh, my God, Israel is becoming genocidal. Look at this language and look at them killing so many people in Gaza and stuff. A total corruption of the word genocide, total corruption of the actual situation in which Hamas had just shown its willingness, if it ever had the power, to massacre Jews, you know, without stopping, uh, which is genocide. Um, so you you end up, you know, we get, somebody says Islamophobia and everybody's terrified that they're going to lose their job or whatever, or their position. And, um, you know, in England for over a decade, people at every level, from the parents and the schools and the and the the administration and the journalists and the courts and the police, didn't intervene in the systematic rape of uh, British schoolgirls down to eleven years old, possibly even younger. I don't I don't know the details, but you know, and for two for a decade, nobody wanted to say anything because they were afraid they'd be accused of Islamophobia. So, you know, there are these words that, that, that carry outsized weight that we have to undermine. We have to make it clear that accusations of Islamophobia need to be restricted to actual cases where people are preaching hatred of Muslims and not just criticizing them. 
Um, but in fact, that's it. And and the inverse is the case in which, you know, if, if Jews say we're not committing genocide and it's anti-Semitic to compare us to Nazis, well, you're just trying to silence legitimate criticism of Israel. So you have the literally inverted case of Islamophobia shutting up criticism of Islam and anti-Semitism trying to identify a real moral disorder um, told to we don't we don't buy it go away in 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 um in the clash of civilizations um Professor Landis, do you believe that october 7th is a potential game changer it should the, be. and and overall are you optimistic pessimistic or somewhere in between all right, so I'm going to fall somewhere in between because I just don't want to be too pessimistic. But as a student of millennial movements, there's a millennial uh, specialist in millennialism, a Frenchman named Henri Desroches. He was a he was a sociologist and he wrote a book on hope. And millennialism, messianism is outrageous hope. Um, he said once a a millenarian movement takes. It's like a forest fire. You can't stop it. You can possibly limit its damage. You can direct it, but you cannot just outright turn off a forest fire. And looking at the situation, looking at the responses to 9-11 and looking at the media's unbelievably scandalous behavior in trusting Hamas statistics, um, and thereby feeding the genocide uh, accusation against the Jews, um, it's kind of depressing. Now, your first question was, could this be a turning point or should it be? A, yes, it should be a turning point. It should be that moment where all of these liberals who have been duped by what I call demopaths, like CARE, um, and BDS and all of these movements and and the 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 human rights groups like uh, Ken Roth uh, and uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and so on, all of these groups have been using the language of democracy to destroy democracy. Now I don't think Ken Roth thinks he's destroying democracy, so at best he's a he's a, a dupe of demopaths. But care. And and BDS, they clearly understand that their task is to insert their movement into people's psyches as a just movement by using the language of the West. Now, after 710, it was really clear to anybody who wanted to look that that's not what the case was. And not only was it not what the case was, but the reaction of uh, the other Palestinian movements other than Hamas indicates that this is not in any way, you know, um, uh, some extremist movement that has nothing to do with the Palestinian movement. So this should be a moment for people, you know, the one of the favorite uh, talking points um, after 710 was um, this didn't happen in a vacuum. And then the people who said that would then go into the post-colonial narrative about Israel, the Jews stealing the land, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't happen in a vacuum. And in fact, what everybody should do is they should read up on 
the genocidal ideology of Hamas. They should read up on why Oslo failed by people like me and a whole bunch that I cite in my in my chapter where I talk about it. Um, why it failed? Because we systematically projected onto the Palestinians our positive sum mentality land for peace, when in fact they were playing by a very hard zero-sum set of rules in which whatever concessions Israel made would be a launching pad for further war. So land for war. And, and so, you know, all of these things need to be reconsidered. In Israel, they talk about the conceptia, and the conceptia is more or less what, what uh, I describe as cog liberal cognitive egocentrism, which is if we're nice to them, they'll be nice to us. And it's, it's not working. Um, now you can say we're not being nice enough to them, uh, which is the standard response of the progressives and the liberals. But, you know, we're on the ground with this. Um, and, and it's really easy for people who want to sort of vaunt themselves as liberals and progressives to lecture us about how we should behave. Um, you know, what's sad is they'd probably be just as suicidal as they're counseling us to be. This has been absolutely fascinating. And as we often say, this is just the tip of the iceberg and, um, Professor uh, Richard Landis, who urge all our listeners and viewers uh, to take a, a look at Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad. Professor Landis, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for the good questions.